I liked how Rachel wrote about um, how undercover cops just break every fit. And then the next day, the NYPD disbanded <laughs> one of their undercover units. The power of fashion. Seriously. Damn, Rachel, Rachel got the whole undercover unit of the New York Police Department fired for fashion crimes. I'm not, I'm not implying causation, but I would like to think that that's why. Yeah, that's what I think too. Uh, episode 97 of Corporate Lunch. This is um, uh, GQ's podcast about clothes. What is our? We came up with a new tagline that we're ready to share with the public. I can't remember it though. GQ Styles podcast about clothes. No, the, sorry. Is the, that it? It's, it's the GQ Style podcast about clothes. This is the GQ Style podcast about clothes. Episode 97. And uh, we're the... Um, it's not just what? the GQ style podcast about clothes. It's the GQ style podcast about clothes. <laughs> oh, that's right. <laughs> right. It's like the Ohio State University, you know. I'm working There's on only the one. Mark, I'm working on the Mark Jacobs. We thought after 97 episodes, now is a good time to to have a catchphrase. So now it's the GQ style podcast about clothes, buy clothes, for clothes, because of clothes, and. Um, Today we are um, going to be joined by Tremaine Emery of uh, Denim Tears, No Vacancy Inn, of Tremaine Emery, um, Style God fame. Where are you making clothes? Yep. Fitting in with the theme of this podcast, Sam No and Rachel are here. I cannot wait to see what, um, I mean, Tremaine Emery is a style god on so many different levels, but his hats are especially... I think notable and I'm really excited to see if he wears one and if he does uh, what he zooms in with. Yeah, I'm wearing a hat. I'm wearing a denim hat actually. Now I'm feeling like maybe it's like a faux pas on two levels because it's denim and because it's a hat on my head. And like, you know, it's like- You can't compete. I'm on. I, I know, should I, I should just have an, I, but it's too late now. Cause I've, um, you know, hair, you know, there's like a whole hair situation and whatnot, but, um, my hat is also denim. I got the denim Al Neal, Andrew Quo hat on, Schritz. I, we're spiritually connected to Schritz. The corporate lunch and Schritz have a spiritual connection, I think. I had yeah. a dream last night that one day Schritz would make a corporate lunch dad hat. Very similar to that one. And you know what? I think it might come true one day. I'm not sure, but. You remember during the 90s when celebrities were obsessed with Tibet? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. The Beastie Boys were big on that. Yes, yeah, the Beastie Boys, Brad Pitt, R.E.M. Yeah. One of the best Michael Stipe outfits ever was his free Tibet with the, yeah. I think it was a dress or a skirt. And that was really big. Didn't um Adam Horvitz, like, didn't he organize, like, the biggest Tibet concert, like, the big free Tibet concert? Yeah. Did you go? Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was backstage. Um, that was, that was no. when I was a, a Beastie Boys groupie. I was traveling with the Beastie Boys. No, I think I was too young or I don't know. Celebrities, you know, like as we've seen, <laughs> they like to get together and, and, um, do think, you know, sing, you know, classic songs such as Imagine or, um, We Are the World. We Are the World. Oh my God. Bob Dylan during the We Are the World video. Yeah. He's always known what's up, you know, like, and that's how you kind of, you know, because he's yeah. like looking at everyone, like, what am 
I doing? Oh. <laughs> was that during Dylan's like super Christian phase? Is that why he like agreed to do that? What was what was the circumstance of him? I guess it was just a weird time. The '90s was kind of like everyone was a little lost. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Hey, Jermaine, what's up, Jermaine? Yo. How you doing? Good. I'm good. Give me two seconds. I'm just gonna grab some water. Great. Of course. I don't know why Bob Dylan agreed to do that <laughs> to answer your question, but he's he doesn't really he never does you know what you expect him to do. Yeah, I guess that that's like one of the defining. I'm sure if you asked him, he'd be like, "I wanted to meet Paul McCartney." <laughs> I think he wanted to be in Gal Gadot's version, Gal Gadot's version of um, Imagine. Imagine, but like she just didn't ask him. Yeah. Someone forgot to send him the the text. <laughs> Zoom. So we did the, the Times interview instead, or released that 10-minute song about JFK, or 17-minute song about JFK. What, that Bob, that Bob Dylan song? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Wild Tune. We were just talking about, um, did you ever see, like, the video of that song, We Are the World? Um, remember that? All, this, all, the, all the famous people on the planet sang We Are yeah. the World together, and, like, in the video for it, Dylan is, is like, just looking very confused and aloof about about why he's there, but um, yeah, yeah, it's a funny old video. It's a beautiful thing. All right, well, thanks for coming on Corporate Lunch, man. I'm I don't think we've ever really met, but I'm Noah. Um, Rachel and Sam are here. Do you know these guys? Yeah, I like heard names, seen you guys pop up on the on the algorithm. <laughs> <laughs> How are you? Where are you at? Can you what's the? Can you give us like an update on your situation? Like just where you are and. Um, what you're up to currently? I am in LA. Um, and I, yeah, I've been here since during the whole COVID. I live, I've been living out here for two years. So yeah, I've just been pretty stationary and just, you know, working, reading, chilling, cooking, you know? So that's been pretty much it. Um, yeah, that's my situation. But, you know, besides being like stationary, a lot hasn't, you know, changed for me as far as the work stuff, which I'm grateful for. Uh, actually, the best thing is, you know, having hopped up. This as long as I've gone without being on a plane in like, I don't know, man, a decade. Well, <laughs> yeah, when you're, the things that you do are so, you know, you're so international and you're all, you seem to be in a different city every other night, you know. In the normal course of things, how often are you hopping on a plane? I'd say minimum every two weeks. At least, yeah, every two weeks going somewhere. So it was, yeah, insane pace for the last several years. So it's nice to have a break from it, you know. Unfortunate under these circumstances, though. Very unfortunate. How do you feel like that's affected you sort of like creatively and whatnot? I mean, I guess on the one hand, you get time to like read and absorb things and think. But on the other hand, there's like, I think about just how all of us, in some ways are having just less exposure to new things, like less chances to meet new people, or of course, like not being able to go to museums and things, you know, after months will have a real impact. But how do you feel like you're balancing that sort of like having time to yourself versus what you're missing out on that was really like important to you before, before uh, COVID apocalypse? Um, the only thing I feel I'm, that's affecting me like missing all this stuff is like 
social interaction with like, you know, close family and close friends. You know, it's like, um, and then like going out to hear music, yeah. DJ, you know what I mean? Like for a dance, that's it. You know what I mean? Everything else is like, most of the stuff I do is like, I'm just going through the roller decks of stuff in my head from just my experience. And then like all the new stuff is usually like adding to that roller deck. So I still been doing that, um, you know, due to, you know, books and computer and stuff like that, films and stuff like that. The main thing's been like, um, people, you know, my close people I love and family and friends and then going out to dance, hear music. We should do a, we were talking about doing like a, a, a bit of a, like a career recap for you. Um, and I should do like a proper introduction, but of course this is Tremaine Emery and um, Denim Tears, No Vacancy in, yeah, among other things. Um, we definitely want to talk about that and, and projects you've done. Um, what can you maybe tell us a little bit about the creation of denim tears like how and when that started for you and what what you hope to achieve with it when when it began denim tears started as like a a joke like a like an inside little joke nickname based off um a pair of like a pair of jeans old pair, of, I had these 501s, these 501 Z, Z joints, 1954s, that I bought when I first moved to London in 2010, and I wore them every day. And they wore them today, they were like ripped to shreds. And then um, back on the gram, just fooling around, I used to just post selfies, but the selfie was never a picture of me, it was like always of some type of object or thing to represent a feeling and usually an inside joke or like, to like really three other people that would know or something like that. And um, one time I post the back pocket of the jeans and they were ripped and it looked like a heart, looked like a rip heart. And um, anyway, I'm at a dinner with um, Virgil, um, my friend Caius Pawson, um, my other friend Sam Ross and my friend Aside, a couple other people. And um, this is like six years ago. Yeah, it's like 2014 or 13. 2014, and um, we had me, V, and, and Benji B was there too. And we had this gig at the Edition Hotel in London, and we're having a dinner. And um, so they start A-side, I think A-side and V, whatever, they start cracking jokes on me about my selfies, right? And A-side's like, yeah, the one with the ripped heart. And then I think Kaya said, like, yeah, his denim was crying or something like that. And I was like, denim tears. <laughs> and then um, the next day, Virgil used to have this blog on style.com. And um, he do a recap of his adventures and, sh and stuff. And so he did a recap of the night and the dinner. And he's like, oh, yeah, Kai's Paulson, Young Turks fame. Sam Ross, my um, first assistant. Oh, for assistant, just started his brand, Cold Wall. He's like A-side of amazing DJ, of, used to be global marketing for Nike, putting out an album, Benji B, BBC Radio, blah, 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 deviation. And he goes, and then Denim Tears of Mark Jacobs fame. So like he, <laughs> he called me Denim Tears in a post. So kind of, I adopt, that was, just became my new monkey. You know what I mean? And then, so I rocked with it since then. And then over time, like, um, 
and this is what happens with a lot of my ideas and things. And I can give a couple of different examples. Over time, things kind of like, because a name in a way is like an inanimate thing, even though you're a living person, but a nickname is, and they start to like gain a different meaning. So then um, I was just like, I don't know, just thinking about it. And then like, I was like, oh, this really means like attrition of your humanity, of being human, because it's like a pair of jeans, you get them brand new. And like as a human, you start brand new. And then you learn things, your community, people die, good things happen, bad things die, people get married, you have kids, you get a job, you go to school. And all those things are like tears. And that's who you really become. And you don't, you're, not, you're no longer what you were, how you started. And that's like the attrition of life, you know? And then um, also then I'm just like, when I moved back to America, so it was like when, you know, handle and like when we DJed and do events and stuff, I'd always do it under that. And then when we moved back to America, um, I lived in London for eight years from 2010 to almost 2018. I moved back to America and it was like jarring all the race reintroduction. Not that there's any racism in the UK, but it's different, it's more classism. And so then coming back to America, it was like it slingshotted me into what I had left for years. Not that I ever forgot about it, but it's different being here. You know, if you read Miles Davis's book, he talks about how he felt when he was in Europe compared to how he was treated in America. James Baldwin, we can go on. So many people of color talked about the feelings of their time in Europe compared to America. So then um, I started, and I was like, oh, denim tears, like, and then I bought this, um, my first Christmas back in America, Kara Walker, she um, posted this um, picture of a cotton reef. And um, I was like, wow, that's cheeky. That's like kind of cheeky and ironic and kind of dark in a way, because it's like the week of Christmas. And then I went and I found one on Amazon and um, I had it in my crib. It was one of the only things I had in my house, my new place in LA. And then, like, just looking at that thing for a while, it started like kind of like talking to me. And then I learned how I started making my own ones with real cotton, like raw cotton, real cotton. Whereas the ones from Amazon have like cotton, that you like cotton ball cotton. Uh-huh. Right. And then I started um, making these cotton reefs and then creating iconography around cotton. And, you know, obvious and not so obvious link to um, slavery and um, America's first riches. And, um, yeah, I started making this iconography, the cotton reef, the physical one, then making it, you know, um, you know, a graphic one and then just other iconography and then did them tears and I made the logo, logo that's in like enshrouded in the cotton in cotton. And then, um, yeah, then Denim Tears became something that means like, also means the like pain, pain of slavery. Um, yeah, and then like Denim, you know, like even Levi's is the most sold item, clothing item in, in human history, a pair of jeans. Mm-hmm. So that connection, so that connection to like what it meant to me a couple of years ago of like attrition, and that metaphor of like being a human, yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah. Then, then coming back to America and then also like cotton being such a 
major part of uh, being uh, African-American. And then, so that's what the name means to me currently. You know, so it's evolved you, uh, from a joke into this now, yeah. You, you On your website, you have an amazing video you made with your, your grandmothers that gets into your personal and family connections back to slavery and cotton. And um, was, was that something that has felt like been part of your story, family story, your whole life that people talked about openly? Or was it as you got into um, working with Levi's, really exploring more like the meaning and this idea of attrition that you started to like go deeper into that? It's a 39, I turn 39 next month. It's a 39 year old story for me. Yeah. And then obviously a general, generational story in um, my family, you know. Yeah, I remember my being a kid, my dad telling me, I remember my first job was cutting lawn when I was like 11 years old. My dad set me up around my, um, in my neighborhood in Jamaica, Queens, introduced me to everyone. It's like, Tremaine can cut your lawn. It's this much money. You know, I trained him up. And then my dad was like, oh, my first job was, I think he said he was nine years old, eight years old, was picking cotton. Because kids didn't have to bend over so they could pick cotton faster and their hands were smaller. They can get the cotton out faster. And uh, a lot of, most of the people from his generation and generation before, your first job was working in a cotton field. And my my family was lucky. The cotton, I believe the cotton fields they were, working for it was like um owned by black people because like i know there's one woman my grandma talks about in a video she worked in a cotton field that was owned by a white man and he he coerced her and her family to have her just work and like she never even she dropped out of school just worked on a cotton field like she's like my grandmother's age she's like in her 90s she still don't know how to read it's wild wow but um yeah so these stories have always been told to me by my my, my father and my grandparents and you know cousins and all that stuff and then my own my own reading that's why i even said like a lot of the stuff the name is like a six-year name that's evolved even like yeah. let's say like the black jesus with the cotton reef that's like a 20-year design idea because i first the store union had that sweatshirt in like 2000 and year 2000 2001 maybe 99 and my friend Vito worked at Union. I couldn't afford it. And it was by this brand called Sir. And they had the, they did the, it was the dopest thing I think I've ever seen streetwear. They had, they did Black Jesus and they did White Jesus. So you could buy the Black Jesus sweatshirt or the White Jesus sweatshirt. It didn't have no cotton crown. They had M65, they had White Jesus, they had a Black Jesus. And um, I was seeing that sweatshirt and I was like, I've never seen nothing like this, let alone a store like Union. And um. I couldn't afford it, and Vito was kind enough to hold it for me until it went on sale. Because that's before like, I knew people like there and would get hooked up like that. And he held it for me, and um, yeah, that's the first thing I bought streetwear. I mean, we didn't call it streetwear back then. That's the first item of that ilk that I bought. And that was like 90, 2000, latest 2001. And so I was just obsessed with that um, item. And that's probably one of the only items I have still from Union. And I had so many, probably a hundred T more, you know, and some reason I always kept that item from moving from Jamaica, Queens to Brooklyn, from Brooklyn to London, London back to LA. I always kept that sweatshirt and, you know, it all kind of came together, that reference, the cotton reef, making the cotton crown, 
It's like, yeah, 20 year idea. So that's how, that's how a lot of stuff works for me. Um, so you ended up working with Levi's directly on that, that collaboration. What was it like getting Levi's? Cause I know in a second, we should talk about Nike and some complications that, or some, the way that situation's unfolding for you. What was it like working with Levi's? I could see a company that big doing something that's directly addressing and like relating to slavery for a company that has a long history in America. I could see that getting complicated. How, did you, um, what was that experience like, I guess, working with, with Levi's to make that happen? Yeah, so this young man, Hector, who does like works in the energy marketing, he hit me up like in 2017, late 2017, and was like, hey, would you be interested in coming to Levi, coming up to San Francisco to talk about doing something together? I was like, yeah. And then um, January 2000. No, it was 2018, I think. And then January 2019, flew up there. And he's like, oh, do you want to sit a picture of, you know, we're going to do a day of intros and design. So I just sent him a picture of a cotton field. And a cotton reef. I sent him two pictures. I said, cotton field, and I sent the cotton reef. And I said, this is my, this is my only mood board, these two pictures. And then he's like, it's beautiful. And then when I got up there, walking around, they showed me everything. And then there was a um, really dope dude who's unfortunately not there anymore by the name of Jonathan. Um, and he worked there for a long time. And they're like, oh, so what do you want to do? And I said, I want to create this iconography on the denim, vintage denim only of um, the cotton reef, the cotton. And I told them exactly what, you know, what it represents about slavery and reparations and everything and they were just like beautiful you know they're very um there was no jonathan hector and i hope you know i only dealt, dealt with those two guys and a couple other people on the team at, in the beginning and then raul came in um this guy raul and then see everyone's been yeah zero i can honestly say zero pushback it was seamless man you know you didn't have to like convince them or or tell them what they were going to have to tell their shareholders or, or whoever corporate board about why they're doing this project about slavery. You know, I, I mean, I asked partly because you said, I, I read in your high snob interview that uh, with Nike, they were a little resistant to using the flag and then resistant to the, the coffin box idea and that they were, that you came up against some friction with them just on the design front. And yeah. that, um, you know, it sounds like you were able to get there with them ultimately although it hasn't been released yet and we'll get into that, but you did get there in terms of design eventually, but you did experience some friction just, just on the concept alone in that situation. Yeah. The main friction was on, um, or not even friction, the no was on the, the coffin box. Um, yeah. my art piece, um, a proper burial finally. Thanks America on the box. Um, that was the main thing. And then they were like, the PR person, not like the designer, the designers and everyone, Mark were great. It's just the PR person was just like, I gotta see is this is is we're think I'm thinking is this flag gonna be disrespectful to the American flag? And then I was just like, soloist just dropped the sneaker with you guys that was black and white, the black and white American flag, Jack Purcell. What's the difference? Yeah. 
let's not get into what the difference is. <laughs> so then, um, yeah, the, but the flag was fine. Like that print was fine. Interpretation of David Hammond's and Marcus Garvey's flag was fine. But the, the coffin was a, at that point, a, 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 um, irreconcilable issue. I had to change yeah. the whole, I had to change the whole box to like, I even show you, I had to change the box to like, this thingy, you know, kind of like flip the old school thing. And um, yeah, so, which was like a huge concession for me because and it wasn't about it being my art piece. It was like, um, I, you know, needed the kids to see the shoe is a coffin because the flag is not just about cool looking flag or just paying homage to David Hammond and Marcus Garvey. It's also my art piece was like, a flag for every a coffin covered in an African-American flag for every black person that's died in this war, which is, you know, which has been slavery, Jim Crow era, prison industrial complex, lack of health care, lack of education, police brutality, all the things that could kill you as a black person in America for the last 400 years, proper burial for them. The same way you get a proper burial if you come back from Nam. World War II or something like that. So that's why it was important for me to have um, the coffin on the blocks as an homage and a, a RIP to everyone that's died, you know, under why, the stone. Why do you think it was hard for them to see that symbolism? Because the way that you're explaining it makes sense to me. It sounds really powerful. You gotta ask that PR person I just their their thing her their thing was um, worried about the U.S. military having an issue with it. It's strange Not to me. It's strange to me that the same company can do a big splashy marketing push behind Colin Kaepernick, it, where with you know the whole criticism of his of yeah. his protest being that it's disrespectful to the flag and disrespectful to the military, and then tell you that you can't put your art piece on the box for the same reasons. Yeah, and I, I think it's a very great point. I think it's indicative of um, big companies not making a stand on moral issues for whether it's poor people of every color, uh, people of color, women, LGBTs, and having a solid stance all the way through. Because if you have a solid stance all the way through, then you're like, support Colin, support a coffin, support this. Whereas if it's always situational based on not upsetting shareholders or the status quo or the, this, that, then your position is always going to change and then you're going to seem morally unstable, which, you know, most, you know, probably all Fortune 500 companies are besides Ben and Jerry's. <laughs> so can you walk us through the timing I know you talked about this in the High Body interview as well, but when was the shoe supposed to be released and what did you decide to do and how did you present that to Nike or how was that sort of announced? Um, Nike approached me, Congress approached me, specifically really amazing guy named Curtains, nickname is Curtains, Daryl Johnson. He was up there working. He no longer works there. He, he left, but um, on his own accord. But he's up there, and he was, like, approaching me, like, yo, do you want to do a shoe? Um, we're trying to do something around Black History Month with these two other um, creatives. 
black creatives. And um, I was like, yeah, you know, I was down. Um, I, I don't like any history month for women, gays, blacks, Native Americans. I just got into history months. But so that's my, my, my only, in the beginning, that was my only, I was like, I'm not into that month, but I don't think, it wasn't like hard designed into that month, but that was the initial idea. So, you know, Daryl hollered at me, which I was super grateful for, and um, told him my idea. Him and his team were 100% down. And then um, we're going forward. I believe the shoe was originally supposed to come out in 2019, February, or 2020. Maybe 2020. Anyway, it got pushed back. First, it got pushed back because of the whole thing with the box so that was just like bureaucracy the thing with the box and then the flag and the box and all that and then the king of turns had talks on that i mean the king of turns i made a concession and like you know diluted my um my idea which not to play a violin for me loads of artists working with brands of all races have to dilute ideas for many different reasons right um I'll put that out there just to be a devil's advocate. And then, um, so then COVID happens and then we have a talk and we're like, yo, we're going to do it next February during um, Freeze Art Fair. I'm like, cool. You know, and I was like, it was going to be based around, because um, it's an idea I still want to use, but it's fine. It's like getting kids passports because for me, what really changed my life besides, you know, growing up in New York and like my family and books, it's like, traveling opened up my own world so i was like man so many americans don't have passports especially like poor kids especially kids of color um you know i remember like when i started hanging out downtown manhattan um i meet kids typically white kids middle class upper you know upper middle class rich and they like they talk about their brothers or sisters or them like oh yeah you know they went away to europe for three months and the third and I was just like, it was the wildest thing to me because it's like only people I knew that traveled was like my dad because he's a TV news, black people that know traveled with my dad because he's a TV news cameraman, black people in the military or a black person, a guy that was playing in Europe basketball. Those are the only people I knew that traveled regularly around the world. Um, so to meet people and like, that were just, going somewhere on the whim, I was like, wow, this is incredible. So I just think getting kids a passport, just having it and talking to them about it, and they even maybe making a program that can help them assist them going to travel, can change lives and can change their outlook on things, even on America, you know, on their lives, which could, their potential, their community, just, you know. And um, they were totally down for that, get involved in that, and then, um, there's a budget in place. And then um, I think COVID happens and then all the, you know, the murders happen, Brianna, Floyd and Ahmad. And I was kind of waiting to see Nike's response and Congress's response. And I was just like, and I think I just, part of me felt I didn't have a voice with them because of the pushback on the box or, and then Daryl wasn't there anymore. You know, Curtains wasn't there anymore. It wasn't no, like, there was no bad blood or beef. It was just very, like, it was very clinical, the conversations, you know? 
you know, I didn't, you know, and so then I saw them post a thing, no lives matter. He did the don't do it thing. Yes, just don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, it's quite interesting a corporation to telling people what not to do for us white supremacy and racism and stuff when your house isn't totally clean from your hiring policies, not hiring policies, just the hiring, what the numbers look like. Yeah. Especially in like the executive C-suite, like the top level, you know, who's, what it looks like far as women Mm -hmm. and people of color. And then from down from there, like far as the executive and then down to, you know, store level all the way up to executive level it is not it is not there is not equality you know they have made strides and i've you know had a conversation you know two conversations with them since the post and they are doing things they've done things to change it in the past and they're speeding that up as they should which is amazing um so that was the first thing and then the second thing is when i see the no lives matter until black lives matter and i'm like it's not even making it about me, but it's like, again, this goes to like this moral Rubik's cube. All the colors aren't matching on your Rubik's cube because if you really felt that all the time, you would have been like, okay with the box. You wouldn't give, you wouldn't give a shit about how the American military about it. You know what I mean? Because this is like what this box, this is a piece of art, like Fiasta Gates, blue chip world renowned artist presented this piece of work because it represents that, you know? It's referencing directly David Hammond and Marcus Garvey. You wouldn't allow that. And so then when I see, and I know the people that were behind the No Lives Matter thing is the PR. Yeah, so it's so, the same people. Yeah, I'm just like, cool. And then when I saw the donation, 40 million across the three brands, I was just like, Forget the amount of money, because you get into the money of what Nike's worth versus the donation. That's a whole thing. But also just like, I'm like, okay, I've seen this before. I'm, I'm older. I've seen this before in my lifetime, donations from brands. And we're still in this place. So now I'm like, I need, especially, I mean, I need every brand, but my voice, with my voice, my leverage, my power, I need to see brands dig their hands in the soil and, and fight systematic racism, produce totality, all these things that we, you know, people of color, women, LGBTs are going through, not just throw money at it, you know, because it's just like, you know, micro for macro is like, let's say there's a program that gives scholarships to like high achieving kids. You see that a lot, right? Yeah, this kid does get in school, we'll give him this scholarship. Are there programs for kids that suck at school because they're dyslexic or because they got ADD or because their dad's in jail and their mom has three jobs? What's the program to help isolate? And I'm not saying they don't. I want to know, is this money going to something? Because this other stuff, it ain't obviously ain't working. And, um, and so, and then also just like, you know, because really close to four years, it's like, that's Tim Mill. That's, that's, that's like a Jordan drop. That's a, that's, <laughs> right. that's a drop of one, you know, they drop a sneaker and make like 10,000 units, 50,000 units, and it's 200 bucks. You know what I mean? Whatever. It's just like, they do that a couple of times. So 
with those things came up and then and then when I saw Ben and Jerry's admission and call to arms of all other corporations and just white people in general, I just like I just sat and thought and then just all the stuff that had been going on that week, like people getting intact, infighting within like the left black person of color community. Um and I was like, yo, these companies are gonna get out scot free. Right. And they're gonna they're gonna push probably a couple people to the front, blah 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 blah. The media too, and then it the cycle starts over again, and everyone gets placated, and we start this dance again until another George Floyd situation happens. Right. So for me, the particular item, what that represents, I'm like, I can't. And I just know, and I could be wrong, because someone could say, oh, well, why'd you, why'd you just send an email? I just couldn't bear to deal with any type of, any bureaucracy. So I know if I go on the gram and, and put it out there in mm-hmm. the streets, I know it's going to either cut through and I'm going to get talk, talk, or they're going to be like, oh, he's bugging. And then I'm out, you know, and then that's, yeah. I'm cool with that too. So, you know, I, you know, I put it out there and I tried to be as prof- professional or however you want to put it as I could and um like not inflammatory but just like from my heart but also with my intellect and um state what I felt also was about I wanted to know where the money was going I wanted to know do you guys donate to Donald Trump because I'd seen stuff that said that Nike donates to the Republican Party and um, I've since then found out otherwise um uh, which is was amazing news to find out this week um according to them, that they don't, they have not contributed to Donald Trump's campaign or even a Republican or Democratic Party that they donate to nonpartisan, um, nonpartisan um, political things. I was told in my second meeting with them this week, the Zoom call, you know, they, they don't support, did not support Donald Trump's um, campaign, which is amazing news. Like some of the most important news I could get from yeah. the conversations with them and and the post so um yeah that was the whole thing with me posting that um it wasn't a call to arms against just nike necessarily it was about this is a corporation i currently have product coming out with this product represents this i don't want to go through any red tape i don't feel i have a person on the inside that i can just text and ask these questions and i know these questions are being asked of me by people that believe in me, kids that believe in me. They're looking at me and my peer group. They're like, you guys don't look angry. You guys look really cozy. You guys look really cozy. And it's like, we're actually, well, I can speak for myself. I'm not, I just been, I've done this cycle of anger about, you know, I remember Amnu Diallo. You know, I see my dad cry twice in the last probably, 20 years and one time was when my mom passed away five years five years ago and the other time was when the cops got off for shooting Amadou Diallo he had to explain rationalize that to me in 1999 how cops could shoot someone 41 times and get off Scott clean to some younger people who this is their first radio rodeo it might look like me and my peers are angry angry or not but like um my my friend and Arthur Jaffa said, the anger, we have to have maintained, as you grow as a person of color, black person, 
the anger becomes a coolness because it's always a storm in you because things are always this way. And you literally will destroy something or destroy yourself if you let yourself constantly, constantly admit, let the storm that you feel out. So this is me in the most constructive way with my voice, my power. I think that I can send a smoke signal to the companies, but also a smoke signal to the kids. Like, hey, I'm doing what I can do within reason and watch how like pressing them and challenging them, we can maybe get some answers or know that, oh, we can't rock with them, either or. Right. So, you know, I think that's what I want, you know, another thing I wanted to show is like, my protest is like me challenging myself and I mean, not putting my career on the line because I'm, I'm pretty self-sufficient, but yeah, I, you know, who knows what, they were, what the response could have been. And um, I think that well, was- clear that, that, um, that you were taking a risk. I mean, you could see like remains, you know, you might burn that bridge right there. And like for someone in your position who, who works in the part of the kind of fashion industry world that you're in, like losing Nike would be a big hit to you. You know what I mean? Like it felt to me as an observer, like a really an instructive moment that was like, you can challenge and question um, those who seem like they can't be questioned or challenged. You know, Nike's such a monolith. It can feel like, even though you're in the position you're in and you have influence and you have a following compared to Nike, you're just, yeah. you're just one man. And so I just think there was something um, really instructive in, in what you did, how you expressed it. You said either they come around and they, they get on board, they get their shit together at least enough to, to show that they're willing to make real change and really do the work or they don't. And then, then we get to decide if we fuck with them or not. And that's either way, that's like an important, you know, either outcome is important. Um, yeah. And, that, and that's, um, yeah, you're hundred percent right. And that's the whole, that was the whole, that's the whole point of it is like, there's going to come a point where young kids of all colors, genders, going to have to say, you know what, they're not supporting us and we know that. And, and I want to say that, I'm not talking about Nike, I'm talking about companies. Yeah. They're not supporting us, but yet we still support them. Maybe it says just about, about us that we have a form of Stockholm syndrome that it says about them. Because, and that's what I'm trying to show is like, consumers, the proletariat, the mass, we do actually have the power, it's just we're so siloed. And the forces that we feel controlled or oppressed by, they have solidarity. You know, Fortune 500 companies have solidarity kind of through and through. When they, if they make it to that point, it's like, okay, we're the apex predators in capitalism. And those 500 companies have solidarity and they've done and got rid of competitors on their rise to the top, but they have so, so solidarity at that level, and I feel, you know, not feel I know that at our level, you know, working class, middle class and down, working class people, poor people, we gotta have some solidarity to um, coerce them. Cause it's not a moral thing, unfortunately. 
it's not about pulling on the, on the heartstrings of the 1% because they've been doing this, they know what they're doing. It's about forcing them to, um, we have to change us. We will incur the wrath of the people economically. Economically, that's the scariest thing to them, you know? That's where, you know, like looting does scare, you know, looting scare the hell out of rich people and people that run it, right? But really what scares them is like, if you stop spending your money with them, right. if you do boycotts, you know, like Rosa Parks and those folks, those amazing folks, they went on boycott for 300 plus days and they got the change they wanted to see. And there just came a point with um, people of color, women, LGBT community, that we got placated by the 1%, the man, the white man, whatever you want to call it, white supremacy, white patriarchy, uh, male patriarchy, and we got placated and we stopped fighting. Because even like Cornell West said it really eloquently, he said, he said, I, he's talking to Anna Cooper, he said, this is like the first days of protest. He said, I'm just yeah. happy to see people out in the street. Because he's like, I remember being at protest about police brutality during the Reagan era, and it was just a couple of us out there with signs. Yeah. So something has been reignited in the, um, in the populace. Mm -hmm. And I hope that it keeps burning, but it, it burns into education, voting, and um, economics, you know, economic, wielding our economic power. power. And then I do believe you will see, it'll still, it'll still be hard as hell. I do, do believe you still, still, you still will see change. And, you know, even my situation with Nike, you know, it shows change on my, my you know, my generation, like me saying that, because, I'm not special. I represent the feeling of a lot of people, you know, and um, it's not about Tremaine and shows changing me. It also shows changing Nike because who knows how they would have reacted to me five months ago, five years ago. But they're in a position, but also where we're talking, we're talking about everything and uncan you know, un you know, candidly, and um, it's really positive conversations, and um, that's an amazing thing, you know. It's, uh, How is the? Um, are you making progress with Nike? What? Who? Like, what have the conversations been like since since you posted on Instagram about the, the story here and, and what you wanted them to do? Who has it changed? Who you're talking with and and what the conversation is like? And do you feel like there's movement? And you guys, might, yeah, where's it headed? I guess. Yeah, I mean, they, you know, to their um, to them. They got in contact same day as the post. Um, very positive. Um, no, no negativity. Um, got on a call the following Monday. You know, had a great call, long call, and they did something that the most important thing you can do when you're in their position. I feel is listen. You know what I mean? And um, you know a diverse group of people on the call um far as power gender and um color yeah they just listened and very understand all the points and questions i was asking and you know the main thing they said was we're going to get you every we're going to get you answered everything questions you asked that's what they've been that's what they've been doing you know they got me the answer about the current spot of diversity, what they've done in the past for diversity, and then that they should have done more, and that the, what they're doing, what they're installing to 
get it right for women and people of color up there. Um, and then they let me know where their donations are going. And, um, and then, yeah, then we're talking about directly how they can be, be involved in um, defunding the police and changing, changing the laws, the immunity that the police department has and how Nike can get involved. Because my whole thing to them is just like, you guys support and make your money off a community that is, you know, one in 1,000 men. One, there's a one in 1,000 chance of a black man being killed by a cop. And these are the same men that are vying for those 34 positions a year, unfortunately, to get into the NBA because of the whole social construct of sports in the black community. You know, that's why David Hammonds did the higher the basketball goal that's 60 foot in the hand that you can't reach. Because you got millions of black young men trying to make it to the NBA. There's 300 spots and only 30, 35 spots open a year. Um, so, and Nike's benefiting from that whole hamster wheel. You're not protecting those people that are, you're not protecting those men and women in these communities. And, you know, and when you say one in 1,000 black people, there's one in 1,000 chance of a black man being killed, black person being killed by a cop. That doesn't include being harassed, they're all being harassed by the cops. You know, we all got stories. So if you haven't been killed by a cop, you got, you black, you grew up in the hood, or if you even grew up in nice neighborhoods, you got a story about being harassed by the police. And I just feel, in general, every brand should be working to change that because you make money off of these people, but also specifically Nike, your thing is so entrenched in black sports, entertainment and black culture in general, you know, like, you know, it goes without even saying, you know, so yeah, that's, you know, they're, they're like, do they have the answer right now? No, but they're looking for an answer and they're, and then also the voting, them getting involved and firing people and making it easier for people vote. You know, the hundred, there's a hundred million people that don't vote in America. I want to see corporations, especially ones I work with, get involved in getting people to vote. Because that's how corporations get what they do, want to yeah. vote through lobbying. You know, and um, I want to see Nike and especially brands I work with currently get involved in that. And um, yeah, and get involved in education. So um, yeah. Yeah, the, the, the talks have been good, and um, we'll see what happens. But it's been positive. And like I said, the most important thing, they've been doing a lot of listening. And, again, it's not about me telling them what to do. Even, like, in the conversation, I was just like, I'm not the smartest. Like, get Cornell West or somebody to come in. You know what I mean? I'm just like – I'm like a – you know, I see myself more than anything as, like, artist merchant, but also I see myself as a bridge between, like, you know – that's why I interpret David Hammond stuff because it's like – I know there's a lot of kids who are 20, whatever years old, and they just know Basquiat. So I use myself as a bridge to be like, hey, he's Basquiat's dope. Check out Kara Walker. Yeah. Check out the new art. You know, check this person out. Check this person out. And, um, there's not just one black artist <laughs> that you need to yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, or there's not just one woman artist, or there's just not one gay art. Yeah, exactly. And just like, I, tr I do my best. Um, I try to be a bridge for whatever reason. I seem to be able to help communicate that. Can you tell us a little bit more about your relationship to David Hammond's work and like when you 
you know, discovered it and how it sort of popped up throughout your creative projects over the years? Yeah, so um, his art's been hovering around my conscious for years. I've seen it. And then um, I think um, maybe A-Side or Virgil might have been the first people to bring it up to me. Like we were like really specific going, talking about him, his work years ago. So I'd say about the last seven years or so, I've just been like learning more and more, five, seven years, pretty obsessed with it. And then, um, then you know, meeting more friends. And then I have another friend, um, Brendan Fowler, who's an amazing artist in his own right. Um, Big homie. Fine, fine artist and musician and um, designer. And um, me and him became really good friends. And then we did this T-shirt series of um, about three years ago um, about two performance art pieces he did. Um, Blizzable Snow Cell. And then also this piece where he um, he had a gallery open. He had this gallery, gallery that wanted him to show there and he kept saying no. So he did this piece where like, he had, the gallery was dark and he had, when you walked in, you get like a blue light. And then people walking around, rich people walking around looking for the art with a blue light. And that was the art piece. Bunch of rich people looking for David Hammond stuff they want to buy. So that was the two, what the two t-shirts were based on. And then we didn't make a lot. We did it with Slam Jam. They sold out. And then this woman who wrote a book on David Hammond and it took her like eight years, Elena, I forget her last name, but it's called Blizzard, Blizzard the book's called Blizzard Snowball Sale a blizzard cell and she wrote a book on them. She got in touch contact with me and said, Hey, can I get some t-shirts? I love them. Also, would you like to come to Basel, Switzerland and do a thing with, I'm going to be selling the reissuing the book and selling it. And then she's like, you know, also she's like, can David get a couple shirts? He saw them. He likes them. And then, um, yeah. And then even I heard this woman, this kid that this not this young man, um, they used to work for me, work with me my colleague, he, um, he was working the pop-up in New York. I wasn't there. And I heard this woman came in on behalf of David Hammonds and was like, what's the story with this stuff? And like, you know, it's this dude named Tremaine, give him cheers. He's a big fan, you know, David's work and kind of gave him my rundown and why I'm putting it out there and what it means to me. And she's like, okay, cool. I'll let David, it was the weirdest thing, man. It was the weirdest thing. Um, I forget, he even had the woman's name. He took her name. So I don't know if that was real or not, but, and then I ran into him at, um, the weirdest thing I ran into him, I was drunk at his art show a couple of weeks into the show being out. I ran into him and- um, The most recent one in LA? Yeah, he was, I was walking out and then he was walking in with his wife and like a career, like a woman that housing and worth. And then I said hi and then I was like, just told him, you know, I appreciate your work and whatever. And then like, he's so funny. I had this, um, I have this like t-shirt I've had for like 15, 12 years. It's like of the Milky Way, but it's like, um, it's not a print. It's like knit, it's like um, embroidered. And he looked at it and he goes, you listen to Sun Ra? I said, yeah, I like Sun Ra. He's like, good. And then he walked away and then like, you know, I've met, I've met everyone in my childhood. In my travels, even before getting into my career, I have, even before working at Mark Jacobs, just growing up in New York, you, you see famous people all the time. And then my having a dad, I watch the news, 
I really don't care about celebrities like as people. I care about their art. Mm-hmm. But if I don't know them as a person, it don't matter. So I could see them. I don't say anything. Literally, I was just like, he's walking away, and I'm like, nah, I can't play it cool on this one. I was like, Mr. Hammonds. <laughs> I was like, Mr. Hammonds. And I, he's like, hey, what's up? I'm like, is it okay if I get a picture? He's like, I don't see no problem with that. You take the picture, and then the woman gives me my phone back, and he goes, hold up, hold up, hold up. I got to see that picture. And he looks at the picture, and he's like, all right, that's cool. <laughs> he, like, he had to make sure the picture was cool. And, uh, you got approval and everything. Approval. Approval. I mean, one thing that occurs to me about Hammonds, um, who um, has such an amazing body of work, and it's not just the, the imagery that really seems to resonate, especially with what, with what you do, obviously, but it's the way he handled himself and his career. And he, oh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not an expert on him, and you should correct me, but he really did think things his own way a lot of people say that but he truly um totally went against the grain of the establishment he broke every rule about how a career is meant to work and the relationship between an artist and a gallery and how business is done he said fuck all that i'm not a part of that system and he created his own way in terms of how his work is bought and sold and how it's presented and um, that's so rare. You know, you think the art world is full of these radical figures, revolutionaries and anti-establishment types, but truly most people conform, right? At the end of the day, same with like fashion. It's like at the end of the day, most people do what they're told. They do it the way it's supposed to work. They get paid and and we all accept that. But Hammonds is someone who never accepted that and, and built an amazing career. Um, and I think that's really interesting to yeah. consider. To consider when you especially thinking about fashion now that the fashion world's thinking about a new way it's like he's just such an incredible figure for how how he did that dude um you and very important that you brought this up so i appreciate that um that's what i take away most from him and it's more so than his beautiful artwork and inspiring artwork because um a lot of people make beautiful work it's um you know and I'm zero percent got that what he has in him. You know, I've conformed in so many ways. In a lot of ways I haven't, but I've conformed in a lot of ways, like most most people, most creatives, most human beings. Hammonds, that boy rode that lightning. <laughs> he rode that light he rode he rode rode that lightning bolt of like holding the line to the point I'll tell you two two quick stories. You know, there's this, um, it was a recent in the New York Times. And they had this portrait of all these older black artists and gallerists. And there's this one black woman, unfortunately, I forget her name. And she had a gallery that she started in LA and then she moved to New York. And then um, she's getting so much trouble from trying, trouble like hate trying to open up a gallery. And then she asked Hammond, she's like, would you be in my show? He's like, yeah, I'll do it. And she's like, why haven't you been in any of these other shows? He's like, I don't show in my galleries. To have that stance at that time, until he, I guess he saw the change in the industry and maybe, and he, even him, him, people couldn't even believe he did that Housing and Worth show. Yeah. Um, that's just one example. Like he just held the line so hard. And then, um, you know, if you read the book, Blizzard Ball, there's a million quotes about it. Even on the t-shirt, we got the quotes. You know, he said, I'm not interested in being on someone's wall 
and they're saying like I own a David Hammond. She's like, I'll play in that, but I ain't hundred percent into that. And then the other thing was the Whitney Biennial had been asking him over and over to be in it. And he kept saying no. And so then he finally said yes. And then the piece of artwork that he gave him was a Miles Davis painting. And the stipulation was you have to show this painting and you can't say that I've given it. Because he knew that Whitney, and at that current time, probably till now, institutions like the Whitney on a moment would never rec recognize Miles Davis as a true, art, uh, true painter. And for what reason? Because he didn't come through the guys and the approval of 20, 20 art people that can afford and buy the art in the world or through the white gallery system, you know, where David, David Hammond appreciates and considers Miles a great painter. So he's like, you want David Hammond's? You got to show this Miles painting and you can't say that I gave it to you. That was his terms. That's like, you cannot cloud up off of me. So it connects to him influencing me and I'm nowhere near as courageous as him, but I also couldn't let Converse cloud up on having a guy that's doing the black and red, black and green flag and it coming out after the George Floyd and Brianna and Ahmaud murder and have that come out without the transparency about where you guys, like, okay, we gotta talk about this in front of the world. And then this can come out. Um, and it can't happen the other way. And um, yeah, I think that's part of why I did it in that way. It's not publicity stunt or anything. It's like, for myself, you know, like, you know, you know, full transparency, my contract isn't even signed. And to me, I was like, I have to post it now. I can't post this after I sign my contract. I have to, it doesn't mean anything. And it's for me, me sleeping at night. And, um, you know what I mean? And I was, yeah, very influenced actually by that. Like, um, and you know what, there's people out there really like, you know, so many protesters have been hurt, some have been killed. So don't even play a don't play one chord on a violin for me, one string. Uh, but with my little, my world, and how it relates to the bigger world, I thought this was something I could do that was be educational and maybe a, a little bit of a roadmap for the women and men coming up behind me on how dealing with companies and how and you know, I could learn something too. I'm learning on the go, and Nike, Nike, and Converse can learn learn something too. And that's well, what, that's what that's what we're all we're doing together. It raises a kind of gnarly question that I think we all have to grapple with now, especially is our relationship to brands. And um, you know, we're GQ, and you have a brand, and you collaborate with big brands, and and we're we're close with brands high and low, American, European, and you know, we believe in them. We look to them to, to, to communicate to us. We look to them to show a way forward one way or another for ideas, for inspiration, for whatever beauty art for so much. And it's like, at some point you wonder if we need to check that, you know what I mean? And, and say like, are we putting too much stock in brands? I think we are obviously, <laughs> I mean, yeah. this is, this is a critique of capitalism as well. And, and other, um, uh, uh, higher, you know, I don't want to just, this isn't just about brands, but what I'm saying is it is a moment to reconsider our relationship to brands and say, is that who we want leading the way forward? A brand? I mean, 
you know, probably not. <laughs> no, 100%, man. It's like I've been on this thing for the last three, four years. I've been saying it to my peers and mainly I, all the stuff I say on a gram in an interview to a friend, I'm really talking to myself. Um, and not in like a narcissistic way, but like what you seek validation from ultimately controls you, you know? And um, and I could, I could just say it from my own experience. And, um, you know, we people, as people and as companies, we gotta see what, how much does validation mean to us? How much does, how much money do we need? You know, how much money can Denim Tears run on? a year and still be moral. How much money can GQ run on a year and still be moral? Um, how much money can mobile gas, uh, whatever, Tesla, Novakishian, everyone. What can we run on and still be moral? Because it gets to a point where to get to a certain amount of money and success, you had to do somebody wrong. And that goes for all of us, all races, all genders. And I do think there needs to be, there needs to be a, a restorative type, a restorative justice brought to capitalism. And it's almost like socialism's mom and capitalism's dad. And we haven't really like, mom running the household don't work really. Dad running the household don't work. And it's like, and I'm not, you know, what, what do I know? I think it's a marriage of um, socialism and, and capitalism and um, curtailing it and a social democracy, you know, a socialist democracy where money is not the most important thing, you know, and, um, you know, and like um, impressions aren't the most important thing. And I don't, that the answer is how we get back to that. But I do think that's, um, you know, and that goes back to him and his career. He's, he's done all right. It's so cliche, but it's so true. I know, I know billionaires. I know thousandaires, you know, I know they're not happier, you know? And I think some reason as a human, and this is beyond the race thing, as humans, we can't, we can't, we, it's the greed. We want more and more. And then we're not living in the moment. And um, I think people get back to everyone, gender, color, get back to living in the moment and focusing on that. Maybe things could change, but I don't know. But right now it's just like everyone's on this money and validation loop, you know, and, and having things. And, you know, I don't know if another Rolex is going to make me happy, you know, but <laughs> I, I think having a kid and raising a kid to think for themselves will make me really happy, you know, and healthy, you know? So that's where I'm, I'm working on and getting to. And it's just like, you know, I think too, if I had been thinking of stuff and whereas like maybe 10 years ago, five years ago, having a Converse sneaker would be every, not everything to me, but it means so much to me. Yeah. And now I see it as a vehicle to educate. And also I make, you know, I'm an artist merchant. So I make a living through doing different things. But she is a vehicle to make a living and also to get an idea out, to get an idea into the world, maybe make someone see something different. Maybe me putting it in the world makes you see something different. Whereas before I just seen it as like, yo, it's Nike. I grew up off this where that feeling is that feel that feeling's dying in me about brands. 
thankfully. And um, I, 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 I hope for a world where a kid doesn't have to get to 38 years old, turning 39, to start realizing that. And maybe the kid realizes it at 10 years old that understands capitalism and brands and looks internal for feeling good about themselves and in the world looks internal and looks to their community, looks for heroes in their community, heroes in their tribe, you know? So yeah, I just, yeah, that's, to me, that's the world changing. If little boys and girls start feeling how I'm starting to feel at 39, 38, then I think the world's changing in a good place, you know? And, but we'll see. I don't know. Let me just ask, this is like a crass question after that, but do you see, do you think the, the conversation will come out eventually, or do you feel like, um, what, what do you think about the future of the shoe? Yeah, I think, you know, what, the shoe probably, the shoe, the shoe, I think the shoe's going to come out um, off these two conversations with, um, you know, everyone at Converse, like literally like the CEO and like five other people, you know, um, and the information they're giving me and the changes they tell me that, they're going to do and like systematically what they're going to do and the feedback they're taking from me and the feedback they give to me. I think, I think they'll come out. Um, mission accomplished whether they come out or not, because end of the day, it's a time step to people. Your voice can get heard because that's why people didn't really vote in the last election. That's what I say. It's not about me. They felt their voice wasn't being heard because they're like, yeah, there's this guy, but we don't believe in her too. We wanted Bernie, whatever, whoever they wanted didn't get in. My voice isn't heard, doesn't even matter, you know? So on and so forth, and I've heard that so much. And I think every little um, little victory, none of it's a pyrrhic victory, you know? None of it's a victory at too much of a cost. Every little victory. So for me, if the shoe comes out, it's a victory. If it doesn't come out, because kids hear this podcast and heard, I got on the phone with the CEO the next day who I never spoke to. I got on the phone from the next Monday after the Friday. You got a voice too. It might not be talking to the CEO of Converse. It might be talking to the principal of your school or you writing an email to the police chief in your neighborhood, whatever it may be, you know? And um, that's, that's my whole point is people taking the onus on themselves to, to um, affect change and not always looking at like, well, where's Jay at? What's Virgil doing? What's this one doing? What are you doing? You know, and I'm not defending them or not defending them. I mean, those both are my brothers, but it's like, what are you doing? And that's my th that's why in my post, I didn't talk about nobody else with a deal at Nike, no other artists, no other creative. Because it's about how can I talk about anyone without what have I sacrificed? What have I, how have I put my neck on the line before I admonish anyone to say what is this man or woman done so that's like that's the victories of whether they come out or not i think they will me getting that message across and that's what i'm always trying, I'm trying to do i'm trying to tell stories and get a message across this one wasn't really telling a story because the story just happened me getting a message across and um and that was the, actually the point is like the fact that the only thing that could make them not come out is the fact that i put up this post they were gonna come out and me saying you know what I need this to be out in the open so there's a conversation being had. And so then if they don't come out, this is a lesson for the kids. And if they do come out, it's still a lesson. 
that's the whole point of the thing for me is, you know, I don't know, there's people that care about what I do, fortunately or unfortunately, how do I harness that? And that, in that moment, everything that's going on, that was the most powerful thing I felt I could have did. There might've been something more powerful I could have done, but me sitting, thinking, going internal, what I can do, that's the, that's the thing I, I, I could have, I think that was the best thing I could have did at the moment. And I stand by it, you know. And, uh, a, lesson in, a lesson in civic and social clout. And not yeah, fashion yeah. clout. Yeah, straight up. Civic clout. That's funny. I had a conversation. I was like, with a friend, I was like, how do we turn marketing and clout into civic, basically civic things? How do you transfer that energy into that? And I think no one's got to do shit, but if you have influence on the level where you got a platform on Instagram or whatever, because you sell stuff or make stuff, maybe you'd be, if you're upset about what's going on in the world, you'd be resolved to transfer the clout into that, you know, and, you know, I've tried to, I've been trying to do that for the last, I said about the last five years of my life, I've really try, been trying to do it on an outward scale, not just internally in my little, my small group. Um, all right. I think we're at time. What do you guys feel complete? I feel like we could, I feel like we could talk about this all day. Yeah. But Tremaine, thank you for, um, yeah. Thank you guys, man. Um, I really appreciate it. I appreciate the questions and uh, I really do appreciate all you guys. Yeah. I'm yeah, appreciate what you're doing. Um, thanks for coming on corporate lunch, man. Be well. Take care guys. Peace.